Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. What happened in China is apparently quite fascinating. I mean, some of the employees of these rip-off Apple stores thought that they were working for Apple. That's Jamie Wolf, an attorney at Pelosi, Wolf, Efron, and Spates. He specializes in intellectual property and related issues. Clients include groundbreaking digital publishers, iconic artists and their estates, design gods, and iron chefs. He was the chairman of the Entertainment Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association for three years, from 2016 to 2019. And he served for 18 years on the board of the Corporation of Yado, a retreat for artists in Saratoga Springs, New York. His depth of experience in the arts has permitted him to advise clients as they grow, expand, cross, and sometimes obliterate traditional boundaries. Jamie, welcome to Artscoping. Oh, thank you so much, Max. I'm so thrilled to be on the on the show. Honestly, art scoping has been a very bright spot for my <laughs> 2020. Just oh, I so, so appreciate that. Thank you so much. But now I know as an attorney, you are full of precautions. So let's start today's interview with a precaution from you. Would you share what's on your mind about our being careful here? I'll give kind of just the usual disclaimer that nothing I'm going to say here is legal advice. And if people have legal concerns, they should consult an attorney uh, of their own. This is all just for general information purposes. Excellent. And it's my understanding that the White House will soon have some extra attorneys floating around who might be available for that counsel. So our <laughs> listeners should feel free to go wherever they choose. Speaking of the White House, Jamie, yesterday was quite a day. Yesterday was the day or yesterday evening when the outgoing president had his social media contacts stripped. He was banned from Twitter. He had already been banned from Facebook, now Instagram. Can you just give some background on what you think might be the latitude going forward in how social media thinks about this type of culling. It's a little hard for me to get into the mind of Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or the folks who run our uh, social media behemoths. It's hard to not be cynical about the timing of this. Just at the time when the political climate is changing, now we find the social media mm -hmm. giants are uh, cleaning up their act and kicking the mm -hmm. uh, 45th president off of Twitter. So the timing of it feels a bit convenient to me. Well, that's true. Does he have any room to maneuver there? Is there any basis in which he could say, this is unfair, the Ayatollah is on, why can't I be on? <laughs> well, there's been a huge controversy over Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's the law that was passed back in 1996, which was when Mark Zuckerberg hadn't even had his Star Wars-themed bar mitzvah by then. That was sort of the law that kind of made the internet in a lot of ways. You know, it shields social media companies like Twitter and Facebook, but also Yelp and TripAdvisor and Amazon reviews, etc., from certain kinds of liability for content that's posted by their users. If you're shielded from that kind of liability, then you can let your users kind of run wild and run free. And that's how we got mm -hmm. the internet that we have today. Now, a lot of people are very unhappy about that. And it's not just President Trump. It's really across the political spectrum. A lot of people are very unhappy about falsehoods and hate speech and incitements to violence and treasonous things being said on the internet. But everyone is a little bit schizoid about this. Like on the one hand, we all like a cleaner internet and we 
grumble and complain about what a sewer uh, our particular social media platform of choice may be. You know, on the other hand, we're very skeptical of corporate regulation, Jack Dorsey uh, making decisions about what can and can't be said. And government regulation of speech is probably unconstitutional. It's hard to know what the incoming Biden administration will do on it. It seems very much entwined with the question of antitrust to me and whether there's going to be a breakup of some of the biggest Mm -hmm. media monopolies and duopolies. Jamie, back to reality and away from the White House towards the art world and the implications around copyright and various adumbrations of the copyright law. Could you give us a primer of what we should be thinking about today in these definitions of terms we're going to deal with? Well, let's start with copyright. I think everybody has a pretty common sense notion of what it is. It's an exclusive right that's given to the creators of expressive works. And that right, or bundle of rights, as it's often called, is a right to control how and where and when that work is going to be used, or even whether the work is going to be used at all. What does it relate to? Well, it relates to the full range of creative works, whether we're talking about sculpture or painting, poetry, novels, movies, music, kind of you name it. Even tattoos recently have been found within Mm. the scope of copyright, which makes sense. It's an expressive work, even if it's on somebody's back or leg or butt or whatever. And this all Mm -hmm. plugs into the Constitution because Article 1 of the Constitution grants Congress the right to establish copyright laws that promote the progress of science and the useful arts. If you're going to go and grant a bunch of artists an exclusive right to control their work and how it's copied and referenced, etc., then very quickly you're going to find yourself bumping into or maybe crashing into the First Amendment and the free speech guarantee, which, and that brings us to fair use. Fair use, it's a defense to copyright infringement. It's a doctrine that permits a kind of limited use of copyrighted works without having to obtain permission from the copyright owner. Classic fair uses would be things like criticism, commentary, scholarship, If I want to write a book review of Philip Roth's book, I'm going to need to take some quotes out of that book to show you how he writes and show you what he says. That's sort of my First Amendment right. Philip Roth might not be too happy about that review. And if I ask Philip Roth, or in this case, I guess his estate, for permission to quote from the book, they might well say no. And that would really infringe my First Amendment Mm -hmm. right to be able to say what I want about his book. Now, how do we determine if something is a fair use? Well, there's a famous four-part test. Lawyers love multi-part tests. Mm -hmm. And there's a four-part test that we unfortunately have to kind of walk through to understand Mm -hmm. how this thing works. Every fair use case is kind of a case-by-case basis. So no lawyer, no matter how Mm -hmm. smart they are, can tell you if something is a fair use or not because... It's a case-by-case basis. And so ultimately, you can only, as a lawyer, tell your client what a judge is likely to say when asked if something's a fair use. So the four things a judge looks at are the purpose and character of the use. Is this a commercial use? Is it a not-for-profit educational use? If it's a not-for-profit educational use, it's probably probably have a stronger fair use argument. If it's, you know, you're slapping it on a t-shirt, probably less strong. The second factor is the nature of the work being copied. So if you're going to quote from an open letter that was in the New York Times, 
maybe that's more of a fair use. If you're going to the Firestone Library at Princeton and digging out of the archive some unpublished letters by J.D. Salinger and you're publishing them, that may not be a fair use. The third factor is the amount of the use. Are you using a little or are you using a lot or using the whole thing? The more you use, the less likely it is to be a fair use. And then the fourth factor is the effect on the market or the value of the work. If I'm a fine artist and you're taking my work and you're slapping it on a t-shirt, are you usurping my market or are you damaging or somehow tarnishing the fine art work by doing that? The less high-minded, the less public benefit there is here, and the more this is just a pure commercial play, the less of a fair use it's going to be. How does that get us towards recent court actions in the case of Warhol versus Goldsmith is one that's been in the news? and That brings us to kind of the question, another term, another vague term, which is transformativeness. Mm -hmm. Transformativeness Mm -hmm. has been with us since the 90s, and it plugs into that first factor of the nature and character of the use. Back in the early 90s, mm-hmm. we had Judge Laval writing a very well-respected jurist writing this law review article where he suggests that when we're looking at the first factor, we should really be looking at whether the use causes a transformation. Uh, does it lead to what he called new aesthetics, new insights, new understandings? Very high-minded. So the snowball starts to roll downhill in 1994 when we have the case in the Supreme Court called Campbell versus Acuff Rose. This is the pretty woman case. It's two live crew making a raunchy hip-hop parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Judge Souter looks at this sophomoric sexual parody, and he sees the fresh insights that they're bringing to the blandness and the banality of Orbison's song and says, Ah, voila, this is transformative, taking the blandness and the silliness of, of and the sim- simplicity or simplistic quality of Pretty Woman, and we're now seeing a new side of it because Luther Campbell has made fun of it in this very pointed way. Now the snowball is rolling fast downhill because once the Supreme Court uses a term like transformativeness, now everybody's using it and everybody's trying to figure out what it means and how does it apply. 2013, all hell breaks loose in the Southern District of New York. This is Cariou versus Prince. Cariou takes photographs of Rastafarians. Mm-hmm. Richard Prince, being Richard Prince, takes these photos without permission and scribbles on them and messes around with them in a variety of ways. Cariou sues in the uh, Southern District. The judge rules in his favor. Prince appeals, and the Second Circuit... Court of Appeals, which includes New York, rules in favor of Prince. They find that his work shows an entirely different aesthetic and is transformative and is thus fair use. And a lot of people, Mm -hmm. including me, think this whole thing is now just completely bonkers because judges are now art critics. And the water that was already not too (laughs) clear to begin with is now muddier than ever because we have this kind of free-floating concept of transformativeness, which is whatever you want it to be. I sort of think of transformativeness as this kind of mayonnaise that's being kind of spread on everything from legitimate fair uses of other people's copyrighted works to completely illegitimate things. But all you have to say is the magic Mm -hmm. word transformativeness. And now judges are getting kind of confused and they're making pretty bad decisions 
that are breaching mm -hmm. the kind of what used to be kind of a, a much more sanctified realm of the exclusive control that an artist would have. So now to your question uh, about, War, about Warhol versus Goldsmith. And it's very important yeah. to note that this is Warhol versus Goldsmith, not Goldsmith versus Warhol, which I'll get to in just a minute. So Goldsmith is a photographer mm -hmm. in 1981. She photographs Prince. Not Richard Prince, by the way, but Prince, the eminent musician. And so Vanity mm -hmm. Fair asks for a limited license to use one of her photographs as what they call artistic reference material. And she says yes. And they then turn around and get Andy Warhol to create a single image that they use in Vanity Fair. So Warhol does his kind of Warhol thing based on the Goldsmith photograph. Seems like the end of the story, except that Warhol then went and created 16 images based on the photo without getting any permission from Goldsmith, which she didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Goldsmith found out about it many years later, and she cries foul and says, heck, guys, Vanity Fair licensed it for a single use. Here's 16 things that you guys are selling. This is now the estate of Warhol. Warhol had passed away by that. What gives? Now... Goldsmith does not sue Warhol. Warhol sues Foundation, sues Goldsmith for what's called a declaratory judgment. They go running into court in the Southern District of New York, the cradle of transformativeness that gave us this crazy Cariou versus mm -hmm. Prince case. Right. They go in for a declaratory judgment and they would say are demanding that the judge declare that the 16 Warhol images based on Goldsmith's work, copying Goldsmith's work and just messing around with it in a variety of Warholish kinds of ways is a fair use. And the court decides that the case that indeed Warhol created these larger than life versions of Prince. Goldsmith's Prince was a sort of human figure. And here's Warhol and, and he's created this iconic figure and he's done this sort of Warhol thing on them. And isn't that transformative? Doesn't that bring a new aesthetic to Goldsmith's work? So the case was correctly decided, and I'm making air quotes here, it was correctly decided by the judge, but it's a terrible decision. Uh, it amounts to a deep pocket, the Warhol Foundation, bullying and beating up on a not-so-deep pocket, Lynn Goldsmith, who went out of pocket, what, $400,000, she says, uh, to try to defend her copyright in this work, and failing to do so. I, I think it's leaving everyone with a, well, not, not everyone. The Warhol Foundation was obviously overjoyed, but I think the copyright bar in New York and elsewhere looked at this decision and thought, ooh, this is not a good thing to have right. judges acting in the role of art critics. Well, Jamie, a couple of weeks ago, Congress introduced and passed new and very significant copyright law changes sponsored by the North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis, who's chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on IP, on intellectual property. And within this 5,000-page funding legislation that was passed was the brand new Case Act that established a national small claims court for copyright cases. So I'm curious what an artist might currently expect when his or her copyright has been infringed. Well, it's a little hard to know how this is going to shake out because they're going to give themselves about a year to set up this kind of new federal claim, small claims court system within the copyright office. We know some of the general parameters. We know that copyright holders could be awarded up to a total of $30,000 in damages if they find that their work is being used without authorization. You can bring a claim for up to $15,000 for sort of willful infringement, and you can bring a, a, 
up to two claims at a time, I guess. It's supposed to be a solution to a very complicated problem of widespread online copyright infringement, but I'm pretty skeptical that this is going to make a dent for individual artists because Mm -hmm. it's an opt-in non-compulsory system. If uh, you're making unauthorized t-shirts of my image, then I'll essentially send you an invitation to appear before a case officer at the copyright office. And then you can either say, okay, or you can say, get lost. (laughs) Sue me. And if you think you have a case, sue me in federal court. So it adds, it adds something to the process. There's going to be a slightly different calculation on the part of the parties. It's going to be a slightly different calculation as to whether to say, well, gee, maybe I should take this case to a, a small claims court because the damages will be limited versus taking a roll of the dice in federal court. But of course, federal court is very expensive and just saps your focus and your energy. And the choice of bringing something to federal court, which was based on, I don't know, you used a meme, you made a meme using my photograph and I didn't authorize it. You know, Am I really going to take you to federal right. court on that and sue you for, for a lot of money and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars? Right. So, so it adds a new, maybe a new dimension for an artist whose work has been infringed, but I don't know if it's going to make much of a dent. Let's turn to something else that I'm curious about because I'm a cyber squatter from a long time ago. <laughs> I bought Whitney.org from the Whitney family for the museum 20 years ago or so, and it was all legit, but... I noticed that a lot of other places were seeing logical names for their organizations as the web was really getting underway, squatted upon. And there's this thing called the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy. I won't try to say erder, but that's what it is, which provides for an administrative proceeding for the resolution of trademark-related domain name disputes. And it's basically an arbitration. The singer Sade rested Sade.com from a cyber squatter in that way. Now, 20 years later, how common are these disputes today? How much is left to be worked over They're in that They're still quite common because a couple of years ago, the floodgates were opened and, and we no longer just had the common top-level domain names that everybody knows, .com, .org, .gov, etc., .edu. The floodgates were opened to literally a thousand or more new top-level domain names like .cafe mm-hmm. and .biz and .nyc, and also things like .sucks. As soon as those were available, people like uh, Oprah and Kevin Spacey went running in to buy Oprah.sucks and Kevin Spacey.sucks because they didn't want... They'd, they'd had some pretty rough times before with cyber squatters, and they didn't. They wanted to prevent anybody from obtaining those and using them as a kind of a hate site or a site to embarrass them. Right. Now there's some strings attached because Dot Sucks seems to be a pretty cynical ploy, but the company that owns Dot Sucks charges about three thousand dollars a year for the privilege of owning Dot Sucks. So, <laughs> so because the floodgates are open and there are all of these new ways to to kind of uh, there's cyber squatting. There's also something called typo squatting, where you know if you know that people are going to spell the name Disney wrong, then you know Disney.com. It might be owned by Disney, but uh, D-I-S-E-N-E-Y.com. You scoop it up and then you hope that traffic that gets diverted, that Disney okay. maybe notices that this is happening, that traffic is getting diverted to you, and wouldn't they like to pay you, you know, lots and lots of money for you to stop squatting on that site? 
what I'll just say about the UDRP is that the proceedings often turn on the question of bad faith, the bad faith of the cyber squatter. So if 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 I've mm-hmm. you know if I've sort of captured maxanderson.com and my name's Max Anderson, no you know probably no bad faith. And if I captured maxanderson.com mm-hmm. and I use it as a fan site for my for for Max Anderson, which I would be only too happy to do because I'm a big fan. Um, uh, then then that's probably not bad faith. And so showing bad faith can be kind of complex for the museum or the foundation or the gallery or the artist who feels that the that the other person you know is squatting on a site that uses their yeah. name. So I'm pretty high on the UDRP uh, procedure. The costs are limited. The turnaround is fast. It's an abbreviated procedure, very similar to the small claims court. You know, our firm just brought one of these procedures, and I've got to say they handled it crisply. Uh, we didn't like the uh, result, but the arbitrator nonetheless had a reasoned opinion that they explained. So it wasn't just a sort of yes or no. They, they kind of explained where they were coming from. I think critics have looked at this and said, well, you know, the results are too inconsistent. You don't really know, you know, going in what you're going to get in terms of a decision. Other people have criticized it for being too narrowly focused on trademark rights. I've got to say, I I think the system is pretty good. That's a good system. Let's cross the (laughs) Pacific. Let's go over to China because it's a fact that architecture can be copyrighted, which may be a surprise to some of our listeners. And Apple has leveraged Chinese laws prohibiting the copying of a company's look and feel to shut down phony Apple stores, which sold bootlegged Apple products. And I'm curious if we have any idea of the scale of copyright violations of that kind in what will soon be the world's largest economy. Max, I think it's a little like going to Tombstone, Arizona before Wyatt Earp and asking how much crime is going on here? (laughs) You know, (laughs) the answer is probably (laughs) quite a lot, but it's a little hard to measure. So, I mean, so the thing I'll say about this is just, I think what we're really up against are different norms of behavior. It's not limited to China. I mean, I think there are different norms of behavior between digital natives who grew up in this digital environment and folks like us who come from the 20th century and and have different ideas about the sanctity of an artist's copyright and control over their works. I guess my question then would be around architecture itself and how complicated it is to codify the originality of an architectural achievement by one party. Well, I think I think Apple probably had two I, I can speak to what would have what would happen under US yeah. law. And and what happened in China is apparently quite fascinating. I mean, some of the employees of these rip-off Apple stores thought that they were working for Apple. So uh, I think <laughs> They're doing a really good job out there of uh, of, of mimicking uh, Apple. If you if even the employees didn't realize it, in the U.S. Wow. though, uh, there's sort of if this happened in the U.S., there would be two different approaches or two related, I guess, approaches that Apple could take. One would be to say that they have a copyright interest in the store itself. And, you know, I suppose it's possible. I mean, the problem is that the copyright that's related to architectural plans, architectural drawings, architecture itself is pretty thin. 
uh, it's a pretty weak kind of right, mm-hmm. mainly because every kind of architecture is going to use a door and is going to use a window and is going to use common vocabulary. Your particular copyright interest is only going to be in a very specific and and small variation on the theme of an opening. And this vocabulary, obviously, this is sort of your area. I mean, this goes back to ancient Rome. So the architecture copyright only gets you so far. But there's another aspect to it, which is called trade dress. And that's the notion that when people see a minimalist environment with high ceilings, bright lights, plain, super minimal wooden tables set up just so that they think that they're in an Apple store. And so if Dell decides that they want to open up stores that, or Microsoft open up stores that look kind of just like that, and they're kind of bootstrapping their operation off of popularity and the reputation of Apple, then there may be a trade dress violation that Apple is able to bring against those ripoff kinds of environments. Um, mm. And there are, there are wow. even cases yeah. where a Mexican restaurant had a particularly kind of flamboyant, these flamboyant Mexican restaurants, they had a chain of them. They were very successful. Uh, other people basically copied the trade dress and the Mexican restaurant won a trademark dispute on the basis that, hey, that's our look. We created this look. People identify that look with us to the extent that they're now, you're doing it so that they identify it with you. You're messing up our, our reputation. You're messing up our trademark rights. Let me ask you about Turning back to more specifically the art world, the Visual Artists' Rights Act, or VARA, is 30 years old, and its application in the Five Points graffiti case has been in the news lately. Uh, Five Points relates to a um, building in Long Island City that I believe had been a water meter factory. It had fallen into disrepair. It was owned by a real estate developer called Gerald Wolkoff. Walkoff let uh, a bunch of graffiti artists, street artists or aerosol artists, I should say, probably led by an artist called Mears One, let people use the crumbling walls as a stage for their graffiti. And Mears, through a very kind of evolutionary process and with Walkoff's permission, kind of developed it into a true worldwide mecca for street artists. Everybody wanted to be featured here. On everybody wanted a wall here. Everybody who did street art and people, you know, artists invested lots of money and time and uh, effort to create a really amazing environment. And it was quite vital. And it became hugely popular in the community. Uh, it was used for openings. It was used for parties. It was used for classes and educational opportunities for local schools. And they really did kind of an amazing outreach for this Five Points community of artists and admirers of street art. At some point, Wolkoff mm-hmm. decided now is the time to take this and develop this building into luxury condos. He informed the artists and the artists were very unhappy. And so the artists tried to get the building designated a landmark. That didn't work. They tried to raise money so that they could buy the building from Wolkoff. That was never going to work, and it didn't work. And so at some point, their real estate lawyer said, well, there's this thing called VARA out there. It's the Visual Artist Rights Act. It essentially gives moral rights to artists, and among other things, it gives artists the right to prevent a landlord from destroying work that's of recognized stature. So maybe we should try to sue on Vara, and they did try to sue on Vara in New York. 
they went to court asking for an injunction. They that's is to say they were asking the judge to declare that Wolkoff did not have the right and had to stop immediately from any effort to try to destroy the artwork. And the judge, the judge yeah. kind of split the baby in this decision. The judge said, "Well." No, I'm not going to issue an injunction, but if Wolkoff destroys this work, you can be compensated for the value of your work. Literally the day that decision came down, Wolkoff got a crew together to whitewash the work and to completely obliterate it from mm -hmm. the face of five points. And the judge did not take this well as, at all. Uh, because he gave the artists no notice, mm -hmm. he gave them no ability to try to remove the artworks or even record the artworks so that they could be preserved in some fashion. And the judge ended up giving him a $150,000 penalty for every artwork that was destroyed. This amounted to a verdict of $6.5 million. It was taken up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They affirmed Wolkoff then took it to the Supreme Court, and just in the end of 2020, the Supreme Court denied cert. That is to say, they said they would not be reviewing the case. It went back to the district court, and the court then slapped an additional $2 million in attorney's fees on Wolkoff, making a total of $8.5 million that Wolkoff is going to have to pay for this misadventure. Mm -hmm. What does this all mean for the future? Well, it means a couple of things that I can see. Five Points was a unique outdoor gallery environment. Interestingly, it's within eyeshot of PS1, and that was not lost on the artists who were, who were there. It's proximity to the high art world, if you will. I see sort of two things coming out of it. One thing is, is that it's something we've already seen because we represent some, some street artists. And we've already seen that landlords are much more cautious when they are commissioning works. And they immediately, right out of the gate, want a VARA waiver of VARA rights because they don't want to find themselves in this position. And that can be very uncomfortable for the artists because the artists feel like, well, I'm putting all this effort into creating this work that's going to live on the wall of your building. I don't want to turn around the next day and find out that you've whitewashed it or destroyed it. And so those negotiations are, are now going to be quite intense as to what are the obligations of the landlord to keep the artwork up, what are going to be the obligations of a landlord to actually maintain the work, because these works don't last forever. So that's sort of one thing is, I think, increased caution on the part of the real estate owners. The other piece of it that I think is really significant and will follow into the future is that we have now a, a district court in New York, and we have uh, an appellate court, the Second Circuit, acknowledging that these works of street art of aerosol art are works of recognized stature. Now, there's always been mm -hmm. a question because street art comes from graffiti and because graffiti was anti-establishment and graffiti artists were never going to ask anybody permission for anything. It sort of spawned this kind of street art movement, which is much more about kind of cooperating with landlords and corporations and government to create murals and the like. But there's always a question because of the graffiti origins of street art, would street art be considered a work of recognized stature? Because we know what, you know, with a painting, we know what recognized stature is. It's 
Is there critical approval of this thing? Is this artist collected by museums? How much does it go for at auction? There's lots of indicia of what would be recognized stature for an individual artwork. But when it comes to sort of street art that doesn't have resale value, in this case, the court took very seriously the fact that this, within the community, this place and the artwork in this place was of recognized stature. And that's huge. Uh, that really puts right. street art on the map uh, in a very strong way, which I think is incredibly positive right. uh, and, and kind of has cleared that up, that we're not just talking about high art here or art world kind of art. We're really talking about all sorts of creative expression that can come under Vera. Jamie, thank you so much for walking us through some very lively topics and giving us some background. I really appreciate your time today. Max, what a, what a, what a pleasure this has been. This, is, this has been so fun for me. We've been speaking today with Jamie Wolf, an attorney at Pelosi, Wolf, Efron, and Spates. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.